0: i turn now on the Word of God once again to Zechariah, second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Read the first eleven verses, though our focus will be particularly on the vision of the woman in a basket. Verses 5 to 11. But we'll read verses 1 through 11 here. Zechariah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And he said to me, "'This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on the one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out,' declares the Lord of hosts, "'and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones.'" And the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted. and There was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar. Build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there, On its base. God's holy word. May he write upon our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, grant us grace to receive this word. To understand what it means for us, Lord, in terms of the gospel. Our privilege to know Christ. Privilege to bring Christ to a dying world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, uh, rather sobering this vision from Zechariah today, I trust we'll be able to receive its lesson and be sobered by it properly and motivated by it properly. Uh, Sin is a terrible thing. Now We know this. But we always need to see more of it, don't we? We need the impression to be made more deeply upon our hearts. Sin is a terrible thing, and the consequences of sin are a terrible thing. When a man lives in sin, he becomes entrapped in it, a prisoner to it. He becomes enslaved in it. But of course, he's become so used to it, so used to living in his sin, that he doesn't sense that much is wrong. We see this around us all the time, don't we? That man, to be sure, in a measure is miserable, but he still prefers to live in his sin. It gives him pleasure, at least some temporary pleasure. But we say he, he is really a slave to his sin. He's entrapped in it. He's entrapped in his own sin. And there is no escape from that outside of Christ. And if you persist in his sin and unbelief and resistance to God, there's only one possible outcome. Judgment. Judgment. Banishment from the mercy and presence of God forever. A kind of uh, ultimate entombment in the guilt and consequence of one's own sins. An entombment which, yes, lasts forever. The scripture describes this as one being cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, banishment is very much in view in this vision and in the vision that preceded it. Previous vision, we read that, verses 1 to 4, the vision of this flying scroll, we were shown that those Jews who were guilty of robbing God would be found out. Those who were guilty of robbing God, withholding from Him in His due in heart and in life, uh, such were also guilty of empty and false worship. So there were those Jews, of course, who were living in unbelief. They were glad to be back in the land, but they were living in unbelief, and they were withholding from God, the God they professed to worship. They were withholding from him his due. So their worship was a false worship. It was empty, it was vain. And they would be found out. That's what the previous vision taught. A curse was upon them. Their lives and homes would be demolished, and they would be cleaned out. We said the meaning of that was banished. They would be banished from the land. They would be found out and cast out. Now that's the theme that we see in the vision before us this morning, the vision of the woman in the basket. Banishment. Banishment from the promised land. Banishment away from uh, the presence, blessing, away from the favor of God. Banishment to that place where the unbelieving belong. Banishment to a place where they, shall we say, are more in their proper home. Their, uh, their native home. Though if they really understood it, they would never choose to make it their home. But men don't think about these things, do they? Men living in their sin, they don't think about these things. They don't think about where they're going. They're all consumed. They're all occupied with self. Self is at the center of the life outside of Christ. That's the case, always. Whatever that life, whatever, whatever shape it takes, uh, whatever the particular shape sin takes in that life, self is at the center, self-absorption. Men don't see it. If they really saw it, they'd repent of it. And by the mercy of God, many, many, many do, and we pray that many, many more will, that if they knew where they're going, they'd certainly think about it, wouldn't they? Well, this is really a terrible, it's, it's a horrific vision, a frightening vision, if we take the time to meditate upon it, and that's what we seek to do this morning. Vision of the woman in the basket teaches us this. All sin and wickedness will be banished to a place prepared by God. All sin and wickedness will be banished to a real place prepared by God. So, first we want to think about the vision, the parts of the vision, its significance, and then the meaning of the vision we look at more closely. So, the vision, its parts, significance. Verses 5 and 6. The angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift up your eyes and see what this is that is going out. I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. There's a basket here, a basket that's about to be shipped out. I think that's the idea. It's being shipped out. The basket is literally an ephah. Three fifths of a bushel, a measure of volume, used extensively in trade and commerce, so a natural emblem of that, natural emblem of trade and commerce. And the basket has a leaden lid or cover, a talent actually, a talent of lead in a disc shape. King James Version, talent of lead, it renders it. New American Standard, lead cover. Now the talent was a fixed weight. The heaviest or largest biblical unit of measurement for weight equal to about 75 pounds. It was used also in commercial transactions to weigh large amounts of money. So a talent of gold, for instance, or a talent of silver was a lot of weight and a lot of money, (laughs) but of course a talent of lead was just the standard by which it was measured or weighed out. The uh, talent of lead wasn't worth really much of anything. But used in commercial transactions, I think about, uh, for instance, 2 Samuel 12, where the crown of the defeated king of Rabbah is placed upon King David's head. We're told that the weight of it was a talent of gold, and, it was a, and in it was a precious stone. Wow. 75 pounds on his head. <laughs> you stand... Still and stiff when you bear that, right? 75 pounds. But a leaden lid or cover, 75 pounds. Now in the vision, Zechariah shown a woman in the basket, verse 6b and following. The angel said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. The woman in a basket, or a woman in the basket, the woman is emblematic, we say, of Israel's wickedness. Uh, the angel says this is, uh, can be rendered, this is their appearance in all the land. Uh, New American Standard renders it that way. But this is wickedness. So there is here the identification of a wickedness and unbelief that was widespread among the Jewish nation. But yes, the Jews were back in the land. Uh, certainly those who were back in the land loved their heritage as a chosen nation. But for some, for many, uh, the sense of their heritage was all they had. They didn't really believe in Jehovah. Man, they were Jews. They were of the chosen nation. And they kind of gloried in their heritage, but they weren't really of faith. It's a very important lesson to see as you think through the Old Testament and the condition of the Jewish nation. So many were in unbelief. But uh, they gloried in being Jews. And there were those here, no doubt, they're glad to be back in the land, but their heritage, which they loved, was all they had. So it was warped and it was void of faith. So sin and iniquity, of course, rule where there is no faith. Other things dominate the life, of course. We saw this in the previous vision. Other things dominate the life. Now, this sin is represented in the figure of a woman, a woman confined, crammed into a basket. Some argue, I think with good reason, that in view is particularly Israel's sin with respect to trade and greed and commercialism. Prior to her captivity in Babylon, she had been primarily an agricultural nation. Now she was increasingly a trading nation. A lot of money to be made in trade. She was increasingly a trading nation. Thus we see the woman, identified as wickedness, is confined as a prisoner to the elements of her sinfulness in the ephah, with a talent of lead thrust down, shutting her in, sealing her in. But here's the woman, identified as wickedness, crammed into the basket. Now, why am I suggesting that we should understand it in this way—that the woman is crammed into the ephah? Well, I think for the simple and obvious reason that the woman—or a woman—would not fit in an ephah. It's three fifths of a bushel. A woman doesn't fit in an ephah unless you cram her into the ephah. Then she maybe fits, but it's pretty tight. Not only is she confined, this woman, this one identified as wickedness, not only is she confined, she's crammed into this basket. And she's about to be shipped out. And as we see, it's a one-way shipment. Most shipments are one way. A one-way shipment. Destination, Shinar. Verse 9, and following, Zechariah sees the basket being taken away. Verse 9, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So two women with wings. In this vision, I think evidently agents of the divine will, visionary idea, agents of the divine will. And the basket's taken away, taken to the land of Shinar. Verse 10 following, I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, To build a house for it. And when this is prepared, They will set the basket down there on its base. So Shinar, is it Babylon? That would seem to fit. Uh, that's the uh, Septuagint, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, renders the, Hebrew shi- uh, uh, renders the Hebrew here Babylon. That fits, Babylon, the idea fits. We also note that in Genesis 10.10 10 and 11.2, Shinar was the land in which Nimrod founded the first empire. The first attempt there was made to array a world empire against God. In other words, uh, this wickedness is carried away. It's carried out of the land that had been given to the people of God, transported to another place, where it will have its permanent settlement, transported to the kingdom of the imperial power that's hostile to God, taken away, shipped away from God's kingdom to a pagan kingdom. Taken away, shipped away from the place of God's presence and blessing and favor to Satan's territory, if you will. Therefore, there could also be a reference to the end times, final day of Babylon. What is Babylon? What does she represent biblically? Babylon is the evil world system, very often embodied in a culture. Babylon is the evil world system as obsessed with wealth and pleasures and possessions. Babylon is the cultural expression of idolatry. We saw this in our studies in the book of Revelation. This evil world system identified as Babylon or Shinar has always been opposed to God and Christ, has always been opposed to the kingdom of God, and has always been opposed to the true people of God. Well, take to the land of Shinar, a house prepared for it. The idea here is established for it. To the land of Shinar to build a house for it, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So a house prepared, a temple, perhaps, the idea here, a shrine to human rebellion, basket set on its base, to be set there, set upon, it very literally set upon its own base. In other words, set where it belongs, that's the idea. It's set where it belongs. It's set in a place that's prepared for it. Permanent place. A permanent place. And so the vision portrays wickedness, wickedness exposed, confined, contained, and banished. Wickedness exposed confined, contained, and banished. We see then here, as we think about the meaning of the vision, all wickedness is really portrayed here. Not only with respect to its nature, its corrupting effects in the lives of those of the covenant nation, but also in its nature, its corrupting effects in the lives of unbelieving men the world over. Wickedness and sin portrayed. Various elements here. We see, I think, the seductive nature of sin and wickedness portrayed here. Think uh, Proverbs 5 to 7, when we think of this seduction. The fool seduced, fool seduced by the harlot the seductive nature of sin and weakness. The weakness in the covenant nation is portrayed in the person of a woman. So the seductive nature of sin. Sin, Satan dresses it up, doesn't he, to make it look very attractive. By sin and Satan, men are seduced, willingly seduced, we must say. They're seduced and entrapped. In Revelation, we get the final picture of this seduction, a worldwide seduction perpetrated by Satan and pictured, you may remember, in the woman riding upon the red beast. Lady Babylon has always been possessed of great wealth and offers great wealth to those who will drink of her wine, to those who will consort with her. What does she offer men? Lady Babylon, what does she offer men? Money, wealth, Possessions, pleasures, things of this world, the things that are passing away, as we heard in 1 John 2, all those things that are passing away, that's what Lady Babylon offers, all for a price, of course, thus the seductiveness of sin. What about this? A closely related, certainly, the deceptive nature of sin. I mean here how one is self-deceived. I mean how one is caught up in one's own sin. Here in Zechariah's vision, we see that the instruments of sin, Epha and talent, become the instruments of one's punishment. Men and nations who sell themselves to sin are, after a time, kept down and tied to that particular sin. Think of our own culture. There's an application here, isn't there? Men and nations who sell themselves to sin are after a time kept down and tied to that particular sin. I mean, is our, does our nation have a problem with materialism or what? Talk about being tied down. Pleasures, entertainment, ours is the entertainment culture, man. And you get tied down to it. You know, people can think it's innocent. Hmm? Oh, there's nothing wrong, you know, nothing wrong with it. They don't think. Right? You can get, and you do get, tied down to it. It has its effects. Everything, brothers and sisters, outside of Christ has its effects. Be sure of it. So here, the woman is entrapped and, and punished by the instruments, the accoutrements of her own sin. These are the instruments of her merchandising in sin. She's a prisoner in the basket, It's her own basket. She's a prisoner in the basket. The basket's sealed with its heavy leaden lid, sealed with the talent with which she had weighed out her money. And of course, it's made of lead. It's worthless. But she's sealed up in it. And so we say... How one is self deceived in sin, and the, and the instruments of their sin become the instruments of their bondage. And we see that next, I think, too the bondage of sin. What I mean here when I say this is the oppressive nature of sin. Here's the woman, again, picture it. Here's the woman, crammed into the basket. Think about that. The nature of sin, the nature of its corruption, all men outside of Christ, what's their condition? All men who choose to live in unbelief and rebellion, what's that like? It's like being crammed into a basket with a leaden cover on it. Men, you know, men deceive themselves, we've seen already. They lie to themselves about this sort of thing, they get temporary pleasures here and there, but life is really hard outside of Christ. And it gets harder and harder, and that's what's pictured here. Yes, a person entrapped, really entombed within the elements of their own sin, crammed down into those elements, suffocating. They can hardly breathe. That's what life outside of Christ is like. Don't let anybody fool you. People outside of Christ, oftentimes they'll say, oh, I'm happy, I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah, it's a blast, I'm going to party tonight. Jesus tells the truth. God tells the truth about their condition. And we need to listen. Among other reasons, we need to listen because it should increase our compassion. Will we not bring the gospel to a person whose life is defined this way. Crammed into a basket. What a life. What a sad, sad life. And it's saddest or sadder because they don't even know it. Or they hardly know it. They know something's very wrong. In their heart of hearts, they know something's very wrong. But will they admit it? Will they come to grips with it? Will they see it? Thus, the bondage of sin, the oppressive nature of sin. Rammed in a basket, and that basket ultimately gets shipped out, out and away from the merciful presence of God and on into the kingdom of darkness. But well, we see here also all wickedness is confined, contained. We see the sovereign hand of God here for sure too. Sovereign hand of God. His complete control over sin and evil. The counsel of the Lord will stand. Whatever men do, and they think they get away with things all the time. They seem to get away with sin. They're living in their sin. They seem to be getting away with it, but they don't get away with it. No, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. A sinful man is not the captain of his own destiny. He is not. Now, this is sort of a doctrine that's preached and you know trumpeted all over the place. Uh, I think it seems like I heard it recently in a. Uh, convention. Uh, you're the captain of your own destiny, huh? You can do anything you want to do. I hope I'm not stepping on any toes here, but, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? Who's in control? The living God is in control. And guess what? You can't really do whatever you want to do. You can't. Now if you work hard we understand what's being said there. If you work hard, you know, you apply yourself, yes, that's good and that's because that's in accord with biblical principle. So that works out nicely. But otherwise, with respect to sin, sinful man is not the captain of his own destiny. So the woman is thrust into her basket, confined there, her wickedness is contained. And she in her sin is suspended between earth and heaven. Who's in control here? The living God's in control. Confined in the basket, the basket suspended between earth and heaven. Who's in control? Sinful men think they're in control. Not so. Not so. And they need to wake up. Wow, all of wickedness contained in a basket, in an ephah to be more precise. Who would accomplish that? All of wickedness crammed into a basket? Who can accomplish that? You know the answer. All of wickedness will be banished to a place prepared by God. Where are they taking the basket? Zechariah asks. To the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Dark picture here. You don't want to miss it. It's a very dark picture here. There's in view temporal banishment, of course, and eternal banishment as well. Temporal banishment, the wicked, the unbelieving Jews of the land are banished to their proper place. There's a place prepared for them. Banished to that place where they really belong. Banished from the land of promise and returned to the place of their captivity back in Babylon. Now, maybe they are not literally sent back to Babylon, but they're shipped out. Banished from the land in the sphere of Jehovah, exiled to the kingdom of idols and darkness. That's where they belong. That's where they belong. Eternal banishment, pictured here, mirrored here, is the final destination of all the wicked. That is hell. Brothers and sisters, hell is a place prepared for those who are finally and irretrievably impenitent. It's sobering, isn't it? But this is the truth. And we need to be sobered by it. And it should motivate us, as we said already, with respect to the gospel. The wicked of the earth banished to their proper place, banished to that place where they really belong, banished to a place prepared for them. Contrast this, of course, with our Lord's words to his own. I go to prepare a place for you. Think about that. Jesus underwent punishment for our sin. He was banished in our place in order that he might prepare a place for us. Well, banishment... Hell, it's a permanent place. Outer darkness, as Jesus describes it. A real place. The ultimate black hole, if you will. Such is the consequence of one having loved darkness rather than light. Hell is a place in which the eternally lost are confined They're entombed entirely in the consequences of the sin in which they had lived. That's sobering, isn't it? Imagine, like the woman crammed into the ephah. All of wickedness crammed into one place. Where is hell? Where is hell? We don't know. But it's nowhere to be seen in the new heavens and new earth. Will we think about the wicked when we are in heaven? Good question. I would, my answer would be, I don't think so. Since we're told in the scriptures that the memory of the wicked will be blotted out forever and ever. And the living God means what he says. How big is hell? Now, this is a really good question. And again, an interesting question. But we might well surmise from this vision that it's very small indeed. Imagine all of sin to be crammed into an ephah. Imagine all of rebel humanity and penitent humanity crammed into a basket. Who could accomplish such a thing? One of the wonders of the created order is the black hole. Astronomers tell us that a black hole is created when an object's mass so increases that its gravity overcomes any outward forces presenting it or preventing it from total collapse. It collapses in on itself. So a black hole is, is anything but empty space. Rather, it's a great amount of matter packed into a very small area. Think of a star ten times more massive than the sun squeezed into a sphere approximately the diameter of New York City. It results a gravitational field so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape. Now, although astronomers often talk about black holes as being gigantic objects, it's important to remember that they're usually referring to the object's mass, not its physical size. Excuse me if you're the, you're the physics-type person out there, and I'm, I might mess some of this up, okay, but you get the idea. Hmm? What if the Earth, all of its mass, were collapsed into a black hole? Now, the astronomers, I think, say that isn't possible, but some say it is possible. That could be the case, because Earth is not big enough. Well, Earth has a mass of some 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms, and though that's more massive than we can truly comprehend, when it comes to black holes, Earth is puny or would be puny. Using one well-known astronomer's radius calculation, a black hole the size of Earth would have a radius of less than one inch, making it about as big as a ping-pong ball. Imagine all of sin to be crammed into an ephah. Who could accomplish such a thing? Yeah, think of a black hole. Outer darkness, a real place, the ultimate black hole. That place prepared for the reprobate. That place where God's mercy has been completely removed such that the mass of men's sins can no longer resist the gravity of that sin. And so the mass of sin collapses inward upon itself. A great amount of matter packed into a very small area. Similar to uh, when in Men in Black, you've probably all seen the movie, The Archelian galaxy was contained within that little glass orb which hung on the cat Orion's belt or collar. All of the wicked swallowed up in a black hole the size of a thimble, suffocating in their own sin. It is too terrible to think about. It's supposed to be terrible to us. Listen to J.I. Packer. Hell is presented to us in the New Testament as a place of fire and darkness, of weeping and grinding of teeth, of destruction and of torment. In other words, a place of total distress and misery. The New Testament teaching about hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that as heaven will be better than we could dream, so hell will be worse than we can conceive. Such are the issues of eternity, which need now to be realistically faced. Such are the issues of eternity, which need now to be realistically faced. Sin is a terrible thing. Consequences of sin are a terrible thing. When a man lives in sin, he becomes entrapped in it, a prisoner to it, he becomes enslaved in it. He is, in a measure, to be sure, miserable, but he still prefers to live in his sin. It gives him Pleasure. But he is really a slave to his sin. He's entrapped in it, entrapped in his own sin. And there is no escape apart from Christ. There's no escape. If he persists in his sin and unbelief and resistance to God, there's only one possible outcome it's judgment, banishment from the merciful presence and blessing and favor of God forever. Now, all of us, because of our sin, all of us deserve to be banished forever and ever. All of us deserve to be crammed into that basket, shipped out to a place where such belong. All of us banished forever from the presence of God. We say again, praise God, there was one banished for us. If you will, there was one who was crammed into the basket for us. And he overcame sin and death. There's one who suffered hell in our stead. And he lived. And he lives. And he's the only one who could do it. He's the only one, if I could put it this way, he's the only one who could go to hell and get out. First, fourth. Fourth. Break death's chains. Now, this is sobering, isn't it? How should it affect us? How should it affect us? Well, I think here first. You go out of this church today, you take a big, deep breath, and you thank God for his mercy. You can breathe. You're free. You won't be suffocated by sin. You'll never be suffocated by sin. You'll never end up crammed into the basket. Ever. Ever. Think about that. Take a deep, you know, we often say, you know, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Breathe deeply. (laughs) Wow. The gospel's wonderful. What Jesus has done for us is uh, incomprehensible. Take a deep breath. Breathe out praise and thanks to your Savior. Lord, thank you. I've been delivered. (laughs) I'll never be. I've been delivered from my own basket in which I was crammed. And I was on my way to hell. And you delivered me. Secondly, this, of course. This should shape how we see people. This should shape how we see them in their sin and their need. They're guilty. In their sin, they're guilty. It's a feature of their choices. We understand that. But we should pity them. Whatever, whatever shape their, their sin takes, we should pity them. And we should then be able to speak to them with compassion. That's a wonderful thing. It'll speak to someone with Compassion. They're all swallowed up in their sin presently. Speak to them lovingly, graciously, directly, calmly, earnestly. We've been set free. Wow, we've been set free. May the Lord give us hearts to thus share the gospel with those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies upon us in Christ Pray that you would give us hearts to see these things more and more. As Packer said, such are the issues of eternity which need now to be realistically faced. Give us grace to face these things, to think on them realistically now, and to bring that gospel to those around us with that in view. We wait upon you, and we forever, Lord, will thank you for your grace upon us in Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.